Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Pretty good? Good, I'm glad. My name's David. I'm on staff here at Frontline. If you don't know me, if you haven't seen me before, uh, but if you're new, welcome. We're glad you're here. A couple things right at the top I want to point out and just let you know. First of all is this, you're going to need a Bible today. So if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles at all three uh, exits or entrances as you walk in. So help yourself to one of those. And if you don't have one, uh, it's our gift to you. Keep it. Uh, second is this, uh, over at our cafe area on your way out today, we have this thing called a discussion guide. And this is something our team has actually spent a lot of time developing, but the whole purpose uh, is this. If you're a small group leader in the room, if you are a parent in the room, if you're a part of a group or part of a small group, or if you want to lead your family, maybe through a deeper discussion about what we're talking about on Sundays, um, pick up three of these sheets. So we're focusing on Abraham today. So it says Abraham right at the top, but pick that up on your way out. You can also access this on our app which is what Sean was just talking about. It's a great way to just engage the content in a little bit different way, uh, a little bit deeper, talking about how to worship together, how to discuss together, how to pray together, and even some more content. So this will be a huge gift to you. And that's why I'm bringing it up right now. So check it out on the app or grab one on your way out today. But we're going to need uh, our Bibles. Genesis 12 is where we're going today. And how many of you have heard the phrase, uh, age of outrage? Have you heard this before? Have you heard this anywhere? Okay, not a lot. Nobody in first service had heard it either. An age of outrage, uh, it's, it's kind of this term coined by someone who has a podcast who talks about kind of our culture and our society and things that we're noticing and trends that we're seeing. And so he talks about the age of outrage. And the age of outrage means this. Um, it seems like we're all one conversation or one conflict or one broken whatever away from an explosion. Okay, maybe that's people at work, maybe that's people in our family, maybe that's on social media, but there are so many things in our world that it seems like the fuse is about this long and as soon as we hit it, or as soon as we touch it, or as soon as we say the wrong thing, we end up with an explosion. Is that familiar to anybody in this room? Okay, perfect. So check this out. Uh, just a couple years ago, they did a survey. I don't remember who. It's going to say it on here in a second. Data Download did a survey. They surveyed a, a lot of different Americans, thousands of them. And here's what they, they promoted or here's what they shared as far as data goes. Uh, and notice this, the United States of America, often we're more divided. Are we not? Let's keep moving. So what they asked is, is the country divided or united? 80% of our country, of our people, people just like us, say, yes, the country is divided. 19% say, no, the country's united. 1% was so divided they didn't answer. So that's what we have, right? So divided, I don't know, are we? Are we not? I'm divided, I'll exclude myself. How many of us, as we think about issues in our culture or issues today, how many of us maybe even just watch the news? Do we disagree about stuff in our culture? Is there division that takes place around us? I had a couple examples, okay? So brace yourself, hope your seatbelt's on. How about politics? Uh-oh. Right, like how often do we say the words Republican or Democrat and an emotional response begins to well up inside of us? Whew. We're going there today. Just kidding, we're not going down that way. But how about this? How wealth? Taxes? How, how resources are shared among us. Does that ever generate an emotional response? Does that ever lead to division? Uh, what about different religions? What about the LGBT community? What about abortion? Uh, here's one of the biggest ones, uh, Michigan, Michigan State. <laughs> huge, huge division, right? Often, so many times in our culture, I think many of us, if we're really honest, we look for things to divide. 
We look for things to separate. We look for things to create division and separation from others. And often the mentality is this, whether this is you and you're willing to admit it, this is me, or whether it's other people in your life, when things don't go your way or when you disagree or when you have a conflict with someone, how easy is it to pick up your ball and say, I'm going home? And you walk away and it creates yet another division and another division and another division. So often I think we look for things to divide ourselves from other people than we do for things to unite us. That's what we're talking about today. We're starting a brand new series. It's called My Blank Family. And here's a caveat. It's not my blanking family, okay? My blank family family, and we're filling in those words so that you don't have to be creative. And the word that we're using this week is talking about my divided family. We're going to track through the life of one of the most important families in scripture, and we're going to see a depth of brokenness that I wish I could say none of us could relate to. But the truth is almost all of us in this room can relate to the type of brokenness and the depth that a man named Abraham and his family experience in scripture. So if you have your Bible, open it up. We're going to be in Genesis 12, starting in verse two, and it says this. God makes a covenant to Abraham and he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And can we say these four words together? And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here's what you need to know about Abram or Abraham. The name is, is interchangeable. It, God actually changes his name to Abraham later. Uh, Abraham literally means father of many. So he went from Abram, which meant father, to Abraham, father of many. Here's the problem. Abraham is married to a woman named Sarah. Sarah is barren and cannot provide children. So God speaks to Abraham early on and, and, and the culture and the society, there were so many different gods that people pursued and, and all these different gods had, named, had names. And it's not that different than what we experience today. Uh, we just don't necessarily call them gods. God of wealth, God of health, God of uh, financial security, God whatever. At this point, they actually had different gods that they would worship. God of the sun, God of the moon, God, etc. And so God showed up to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm inviting you to leave what you know. I'm inviting you to leave your family. I'm inviting you to leave your way of life. I'm inviting you to leave your land to come and follow me. Because all these other gods with quotes aren't actually gods. There's one God and I am he. Follow me. So Abraham follows, and then God makes this covenant to him, and he says, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, that your name will be blessed, you will be a blessing to the world. But Abram doesn't have any children. Well, that seems problematic. Because at the time that God makes this promise, this covenant to Abraham, he is 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 65 far beyond her ability to bear children. And God makes a promise and he says, through you will come offspring and I will make you into many nations that the world will know you. You will bless the world through your offspring. So imagine Abraham, God makes this promise to you. You've been, it's like you're at the start of history. You're not in the middle of history. You are the start of history. God is going to do something and move through you and your family for the sake of the whole world. Our first question, if we're normal, right, just like Abraham is this, how's that going to work? I don't know if you noticed, she's barren. 
she can't produce kids. And so you're saying, I, I trust you, but I'm just saying, I, I, I don't know how it's going to work per se, but I trust you. It says God credited it to him as righteousness. He had faith that God would do what he said. And so he followed, but 10 years goes by and no kids. This is important. God made a covenant to Abraham and he actually reinforced the covenant over and over a couple different times. He, he reminded Abraham, I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you an heir. Well, 10 years passes by. Abraham gets nervous. Here's a couple things that happen. A famine strikes the land. Abram grabs his family and grabs his wife and they travel over and they move to Egypt because that's where, that's where they could get food. That's where their family could survive. So in Egypt, as they're heading in, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was beautiful. She was beautiful. And Abraham turned to her and he said, hey, I, I know the Egyptians. Uh, they're going to see you. They're going to think you're beautiful. And they're going to kill me to get you if they know that you are my wife. So say to everyone, you're my sister. Just lie. So that's what she does. She says, I, I'm his sister. And Pharaoh, leader of Egypt, takes notice. And he says, bring her to me. And so Pharaoh takes in Sarah as his wife. Can you imagine this? And he gives Abraham, he pays him off, whatever. And, and what happens is this. While Sarah is with Pharaoh, before Pharaoh could even touch her, Pharaoh gets hit with plagues from God and dreams that warn him, do not touch her. She is married. And so Pharaoh comes back to Abraham and he goes, you lied to me. She's not your sister. She's your wife. And so Pharaoh says, take her and leave. And as he leaves, Pharaoh makes Abraham a very wealthy man. He gives him cattle. He gives him sheep. He, he blesses him. He gives him lots of, lots of goods. But something important that he also gives him is slaves. One of them who will play a very significant role here in a second. So 10 years had passed. Abram still has no children. Think about the fear that Abram might be feeling. Genesis 15, verse 2, it says this. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. He's a servant of mine. You've not given me a child. You've not given me a son. Therefore, just by our custom, my line and my estate will go to my servant. God, you promised. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son, who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. The Bible's made up of real people. This is a real story. Abraham was a real man, and his wife Sarah was a real woman. And if you're 10 years in, so you're now 85, your wife is 75, you start getting nervous, right? How many of us, if we're just honest, it, there's, there's a pressure that starts mounting. There's a responsibility that we start to feel, that God's promise is somehow our responsibility to make sure it happens. The one who feels it the most, and I gotta tell you this, the more I read this story and the more I study, I have never related emotionally as much as I do with the characters in this story. Think about Sarah. At this time in history, women played one primary role, and it was to produce children. Abram is the leader of a clan. 
God made a promise to Abram, and he said, I will make you into a great nation. But Abram is married to Sarah, who can't produce, especially the women in the room. What does she feel? Pressure. Guilt. Shame. It seems to her like the weight of the world, literally, is on her shoulders to produce a child, and she can't. And with those feelings come fear, shame, guilt, going, it's all because of me. So here's what happens. Genesis 16, 1 to 6, this is the pinnacle of the division that begins in Abraham's story. It reads like this. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had what type of slave? An Egyptian slave. This slave was Hagar, one of the slaves that Pharaoh gave to Abraham. This is important. An Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. This is important culturally, just to understand, we don't function like this, thank the Lord. But the way that culture worked in this is that if a woman could not produce children, what she could do is take one of her favored servants, elevate her to the role of a second wife, not to exceed the position of the first wife, but could elevate her to the role of a second wife that she would produce a child. The child would then be given to the first wife, in this case, Sarah, and Sarah would raise the child as her own. Notice God's promise was made to Abraham and Sarah. And don't forget this, God protected Sarah for a very specific purpose. And Abraham would have realized that. So let's keep reading. Abraham agreed to what Sarah had said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Uh, is it fair to say Thanksgiving won't look the same moving forward? It's going to be a little awkward, right? Let's keep reading. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. How many, are you, how many of you are familiar with the blame game? Any of you play that at your house? I play it all the time. And I got a horrible record, okay? So she blames Abraham. You're responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. She hates me. Isn't it interesting? Sarah desperately wants something and can't have it. And Hagar, who likely doesn't want what is being thrown at her, gets what Sarah wants. The jealousy, the anger, the brokenness, the shame, all of it is just welling up inside. So here's what Sarah says, may the Lord judge between you and me. That's basically saying, let God be the judge, but he's going to be on my side. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled. Kind of just turn the page for a second and say this. 
How many of us in this room, if we're honest, get it? Like this time of year, we're in November, we're approaching Thanksgiving, we're approaching Christmas. How many of us maybe just dread going to the family parties? You know, stuff like this, it's like there's generational brokenness that often exists and is present and, and things that have been said and things that have been done and people who have been hurt and, and wrongs that have been made and sin that's been committed in families, how easy it is for it to divide for it to manipulate, for it to control, for it to cause damage and wreak havoc and chaos. So many of us in this room are just familiar with it. As we walk in, maybe you do what my family does. We either do A, we don't show up. That's called fleeing, like Hagar. We go, sorry, I'm busy doing anything else. Really? On Christmas? Yep, I'm busy. I'm busy. Not coming. B, you show up in the room and nobody talks about it. Nobody says a word. It's like this giant honking elephant in the middle of the room and nobody acknowledges. You just keep it light, keep it fluffy and don't acknowledge. Or number three, you do this, you turn on football, right? One thing I love, Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know there's always gonna be a game on because when football's on, we don't have to talk about anything else and we just get through the day. There's so many of us that this is how we relate to our families and sin and brokenness and shame and guilt and all of it, how it really just divides it wreaks havoc. Other things that maybe cause havoc or damage in your life may be this. Maybe you come from a blended family. That there's divorce or there's remarriage or there's death in your family that has caused a blended family to take place. Maybe some of you have to share custody with kids or grandkids. Maybe it's politics. Maybe people are just trolling on both sides. Maybe it's wealth. And differences upon who makes what in your family. And that it actually creates division. Maybe it's religion. There's so many things that just divide and they seek to separate what God intended to make good. And let me ask, this is a stupid question, but I'm just going to ask you. Why would God use this family to bless the entire world? He could have chosen anyone. And yet the damage and the destruction and the division that's taking place is wreaking havoc all around. Can I ask this question? Does this ever happen in the church? Does this ever happen in a body of believers that something happens or some sort of conflict or some sort of dispute, someone says something or a speaker says something that's twisted or contorted or whatever or posted and they say, I'm never gonna be associated with that. And we do the same thing. We pick up our ball, we walk away, never to return. I think this happens in our family. I think this happens in our marriage. I think this happens in our church. I think it happens all around us. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why are there so many different church denominations? I think it's because of this. I think we as people are bent on looking for things that divide us rather than things that unite us. And it wreaks destruction. So what do we do with that? How do we fix that? Let's keep reading. Because unfortunately, there's a chapter two of the brokenness. Genesis 21, verse eight, says this, the child grew and was weaned. So here's what happened. Abraham and Sarah, 14 years later, after the birth 
of Ishmael. That was the first son that Abraham had with Hagar. They had a son named Ishmael. Ishmael grew to be 14. He was raised by who he knew as mom and dad, Abraham and Sarah. Remember, Sarah would have taken this child as her own and raised 14 years later. Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 89. And God says, guess what? My covenant to you that I promised that would be your flesh and blood, you are pregnant. And sure enough, Abraham and Sarah, they had conceived a child. And when Abram's 100 years old, and when Sarah is 90, they give birth to a son, and his name is Isaac. That's who this is. And the child grew and was weaned, Isaac. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abram, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. Let's put, our shoes, let's, let's put ourselves back in the shoes of Sarah for a second. You have wanted a child your entire life. You've waited, you've prayed, you've done everything that could be expected of you, and it was withheld until your 90th birthday. And you're finally holding your own. And the other child in your life, 14 from a different woman, is making fun of your child. What happens to the mom instincts? Here's what she says. She said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. Notice she doesn't even name them. Get rid of the slave woman and get rid of her son, who, by the way, for the last 14 years has been her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. Do you hear the bitterness and the anger that just comes out. This family is being ripped to shreds. And so here's what Abraham, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Here's what happened. Abraham sent away Hagar and Ishmael. And they're in the desert and Hagar is crying because she thinks she's going to die. And I just have to guess, because I've watched my wife with our son, I bet she's devastated because she thinks her son is going to die. And in a place of brokenness, God shows up and God speaks to her and says, Hagar, you're not going to die. And your son, I'm going to bless him, that he will become a nation, but he will war with nations for the rest of his life. Can I ask this question? Why do you think that is? Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that for 14 years, he was the promised chosen child who believed he was going to be the blessing, the line of which God was going to produce blessing for all people? He thought he was it. And overnight, a new brother came in and he lost his mom and he lost his dad, and he lost all the prestige and power and accolades, everything that he had in an instant. It's no wonder that for the rest of his life, he will live with a chip on his shoulder. Agreed? It's hard to blame him now, isn't it? I, 
think there's people like that in our families. I think there's many of us in this room that often live with a chip on our shoulder, that something happened and something hurt and we live and act in a certain way, but it causes division. Why would God choose this family to bless the world through? Do you want to know what happens? I'm going to fast forward history for you about four or 5,000 years. Okay, you ready? Put your seatbelt on. Here's what happens. Ishmael does become a great nation and Isaac does become a great nation. So the two brothers, half-brothers, become great nations. Isaac, we can actually trace his lineage down, and Isaac, out of Isaac came Israel, right? We're going to talk, this series is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob changed his name to Israel, or God changed his name to Israel. And so Israel became a nation that we still know about today. Israel and Israelites and the Jews. Here's what happened with Ishmael. Ishmael went off and became his own nation, and out of Ishmael came a man named Muhammad and Islam. Have you ever wondered why Palestine and Israel still war together today? It is because this, they both believe they are entitled to the promise that was owed to the firstborn in Genesis. Wow, I thought my family was messed up. <laughs> you trace it down for millenniums, the devastatingly deep, brokenness that sin caused. Wow. I want to ask a question. The question is this. As we look at all the characters in the story, remember, they're real people. What do they all want? I mean, really, what do they want? Let's start with Abraham. What does Abraham want? Abraham wants an heir. He's scared. He's fearful. He, he, God made a promise to him. Abraham wants it to come true, so he wants an heir. Let's go to the next one. Sarah. What does Sarah want? Sarah wants a son. It's deeper than that, though. Right? Everybody in this room, you get it. You understand. What Sarah wants is Sarah wants value. She wants to contribute. She wants to offer something that culture and society and family is putting pressure. She wants that. Let's keep going. Hagar. Hagar wants her son's success. According to their culture, Ishmael is in line to receive the inheritance. What about Ishmael? I think if we really get to it, Ishmael wants love and acceptance. Because at age 14, it seemed like both of those were stripped from him. Imagine Isaac growing up in a family in which there's great division and brokenness and hatred. I think Isaac wants understanding. What happened? And what little boy doesn't want a brother? I wonder what he felt. I wonder what they all felt. Who do you blame for the division and the brokenness in the family? Because I'm going to be straight with you. I have a hard time blaming any of them. Seemed like they all had a pretty good reason for doing what they did. Granted, yes, there was sin. God had made a promise and they didn't live up to it and there were some really bad decisions made, but it, at least we can kind of see why they did it, right? I think the same is true for our families. That many times what we just experience is the division and the brokenness and the separation. But if we really got to it and we really started unpacking and understanding, we would walk away and the light bulb would go off and we would go, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. 
You know, Satan's desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's it. He's got a pretty clear motive. Steal, kill, destroy. I think in this story, and I think for many of our stories, Satan wants to do this. He wants to steal joy that God intends to give. I think Satan desires to kill relationships. Relations where there's a bond and where there's a unity. Satan desires to just kill that. And then I think he desires to destroy families. And I don't, I don't even need to show you any statistics, but it seems like he's doing a pretty good job in our country sometimes. Let me ask the question again. Why would God use this family as a conduit of blessing for the world? We often forget to ask one more character in the story, what do they want? And that's true for our families as much as it is this one. What about this? What does God want? Really? What does God really want? Let's go. Genesis 12, verse 2 to 3. We've read this right at the top. I will make you a new great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What I want you to hear today is the heart of God is to bless you. And the heart of God isn't just to bless only you, but all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. God's desire is to move and to bless. If you want to know why this story unfolded the way it did, why God wanted Isaac to be the chosen one, it's this. God wanted his fingerprints on the story of redemption for the world. That Abraham, who was far beyond his age, that he should have been able to reproduce. And Sarah, the same thing. What God wanted is that everybody knew it was a miracle that they had a child. And miracles are associated with who? God. We can actually trace the story, Abraham to Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob, and then Jacob to all of his descendants. God has his fingerprints all over. Whatever culture would decide and say, this is the way it should be, there are times that God comes in and goes, nope, I'm changing that. I'm switching that. We're going to talk about Isaac next week, same thing. God changes and turns and manipulates so that you can see his fingerprints all over his story. This is unbelievable. The descendant of Abraham to Isaac, why Isaac was chosen, who led and you follow down the family lineage, actually ends with a person named Jesus. Unbelievable that God's fingerprints were all over it and it traced it all the way down to the purpose and person of Jesus so that this, this is such a cool statement, so that the bloodline of blessing from God stops and starts with Jesus. Follow this. The genealogy, the genetics, God said, I want my fingerprints on it. Remember, he protected Sarah and he promised Abraham and he said, this is where it's starting. You guys will be a blessing to the world. We can trace their lineage all the way down to the person of Jesus. And that is where the blood, the physical bloodline ends. That God's desire to bless the world through this family, it ends, but it also starts. 
You see, it starts a new bloodline, which is a spiritual bloodline. This is what God said. This was his purpose and his plan the whole time. He's amazing. He said, from the very beginning, I wanted to culminate with Jesus so that on the cross, it is no longer about your family bloodline, but your spiritual one. That when Jesus died on a cross and gave his life and sacrificed it on our behalf and then rose again three days later, he established a new bloodline that said, if you have faith in Jesus as your savior, you are now a part of the family of promise and blessing for the sake of the world. Wow. Didn't see that one coming. What does God truly want? God wants unity. God wants to be a blessing. God wants redemption. And the specificity of choosing Isaac and so many others that led up to Jesus is so that Jesus could bridge the gap of the biggest division that all of us in this room and all of human history have ever experienced. And that division was caused by a thing called sin. That before Jesus, we had no access to the Father. Zero. Because of our own sin. Because of our own guilt. Because of our own brokenness. And God said, that's not good enough for me. It was not enough for God to just have everybody at the table. It was that everyone would be united under one name. And that name is Jesus. I think for some of you in this room, you need to take that step. That maybe this is the first time you've ever heard or understood why it seems like you and God are so far apart. It's because the person of Jesus bridges that gap and God says, salvation is found in my son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but they'll have eternal life. Some of us in this room just need to hear that, that God has been pursuing you through the person of Jesus to restore and redeem you and the division, not just that you've had with other people, but the division that you've had with God. Wow. But then there's this other group of those that have already given your lives to the Lord that have already said, God, I trust you and I follow you and I've allowed the person of Jesus to pay my debt. God says, I'm inviting you to be a part of my bloodline called the church. And it is now for the rest of history until Jesus returns that God uses and leverage his church as a vessel of blessing and grace and forgiveness for the world. That is our God. I get brokenness. I get family brokenness. There's been some deep-seated brokenness in my family for decades. And I've watched it rip relationships apart. I've watched it rip hearts apart. I've watched it try to separate marriages. I've watched it create division among siblings. I've experienced it. And here's what God says that I've called you part of his church to bring unity to where there is division because I am a member of his church and so are you so here's my challenge to you as you head in to this Thanksgiving season to this Christmas season 
when emotions and brokenness and pain and division all come up and all rear their heads, here's my challenge to you is that you would act as an agent, as an agent of blessing from God. And how do you do that? Here's the first one. I just want to ask this question. Who do you need to apologize to? Some of us, we just need to acknowledge that we have done damage. We may not have intended to do damage. I don't think anybody in the passage we read today intended to create division, but they did. So I just want to start here and go, is there anybody that you just need to own and apologize to as a member of the church and say, I just, I want to apologize. I'm so sorry. Here's the second one. Who do you need to forgive? I think everybody in this room could think of someone who's hurt you. And if you're anything like me, maybe you've held on to that for a long time. And the funny thing about forgiveness is it's way more about the person who forgives than it is the one who receives it. And some of you need to forgive the other person for whatever they did. Here's the last one. I love this one. Who do you need to bless? Genesis 12, verse two to three, God said, Abraham, I want you to be a blessing to all people. I wanna bless Asians, Africans, Arabs, Americans, heck, even Canadians. I wanna bless them all. everybody in your family, your spouse, your ex, your boss, people who have heard us, God says, I want to bless them. And I want to use you to accomplish that. God sent us on an unbelievable mission. And he's given us such a great gift in the Holy Spirit to lie and to, to guide and lead us and, and give us discernment but it's up to us to decide to follow. Let me pray for us. God, I think this brings up a lot of emotions. There's a lot of division in our lives, in our country, in our church, even Father, maybe in our marriages, all over the place. Lord, thank you for not being satisfied with division, but for bridging the gap for us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us, for drawing us near through the person of Jesus. Father, I pray right now that if anybody needs to give their life to you, I pray that they would do it right now in this moment. And they would say, God, I fought you, but I, I surrender. I give my life to you. I trust you and trust in Jesus that he paid my debt and bridged the gap of division between me and you. Father, we just lift them up to you in prayer right now. God, the other group of us in here that, that is a part of your church, that wants to follow you, that wants to be obedient. Father, I pray for courage to do what others in our family and in our context won't do. To speak life into where there's death. To bring order where there's chaos. Father, I pray that you would bring up certain people, specific people, specific brokenness, specific division, specific sin that have happened and taken place in our family so that you might use us to speak into it as an agent of blessing.
God, we love you. We're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for your church. And we just pray that you would continue to stir our hearts and lead us for your glory. We love you. Everybody said together, amen.